This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Thursday, April 28th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Canada has become the first country to release census data on their trans and non-binary population, plus a new study showing how the climate emergency could fuel future pandemics. And in lighter news, some MIT engineers 3D printed a new device to study why Oreos rarely split the cream filling evenly when you twist them apart. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. In a world first, Canada has collected and released census data on its trans and non-binary residents. Overall, the census, taken every five years, found that about one in every 300 Canadians over the age of 15 is trans or non-binary, with breakdowns including 31,555 trans women, 27,905 trans men, and 41,355 non-binary people. In total, just over 100,000 people out of a population of over 30 million. This was the first time trans and non-binary fields were included on the Canadian census, although a 2018 survey on safety in public and private spaces estimated around 75,000 Canadians to fall into those categories. Now, following along with findings from other nations, the trans and non-binary populations were higher in younger demographics. At nearly 1 in 100 for the 20 to 24-year-old population, and just one in 700 for those 65 or older. But, quoting Extra Magazine, Statistics Canada suggests this could be a byproduct of younger Canadians being able to access virtual support communities and answers to questions that were less accessible to older generations. It's also important to note that at least 26,000 Canadians have died from HIV-AIDS since the epidemic began in the 1980s, a death toll that likely includes many older children trans people, end quote. Now, it's also possible that the data set from the census could be a tad skewed due to the way the questions were asked and the general resistance some people have to sharing this information with a government body. On the census, respondents were asked what their sex at birth was and then what their gender was. And for sex at birth, there were the options male and female. For gender, there was male, female, and a write-in option, for which over 70% of respondents utilizing that function wrote non-binary. But some respondents took issue with the inclusion of the sex at birth question, which first excluded intersex people, and second suggested that even people who have legally had their birth certificate and all other documents updated through great strife and expense over the years still had to write in outdated information. Journalist Nico Stratus described the experience as degrading. And I can say anecdotally that many trans people experiencing similar feelings would choose 
choose to instead mark their sex at birth as their current gender in order to avoid any potential discrimination, unwanted attention, or dysphoric feelings. Which is why I say that there could be an undercounting issue due to the framing of the questions. Now, Extra Magazine shared a better example from Scotland, whose 2022 census simply asks for the sex of respondents and then includes a further question asking if they consider themselves to be trans or have a trans history, which is similar to how I've personally advised many institutions to frame their questions around sex and gender if they feel that collecting that information and the trans status of respondents is relevant at all. That's a good question to be asking to start with. Do you actually need this information? Will you be using it? But in the case of a national census, particularly in a largely supportive nation like Canada, it is relevant so that the government can know how best to serve their trans and non-binary population and draw on information like roughly how many trans and non-binary people live in which areas. For example, Yukon apparently has one of the smallest populations of trans and non-binary people, but the most comprehensive trans-affirming healthcare in the entire nation. Findings such as that Nova Scotia has the highest proportion of trans and non-binary residents could support the need for greater funding in that province. But overall, it's just some interesting data and nice to see some relatively benign news about trans people in the midst of so many targeted anti-trans campaigns in places like the U.S. and the U.K. Okay, so this is not going to be a happy segment, but it is fascinating and I thought relevant or important, I guess. Sounding like an attempt to hit all the squares on an apocalyptic bingo card, a new study published today in the journal Nature indicates that the next pandemic could be caused by cross-species transmission occurring as a result of the climate emergency. Cool, 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 cool. Basically, as the global temperature rises and ecosystems are destroyed in other ways, animals will migrate to areas of greater density alongside other species that they aren't accustomed to sharing space with. They will spread diseases amongst each other that could pass to humans as well. The Guardian elaborates, quote, The research paper states that at least 10,000 types of virus capable of infecting humans are circulating silently in wild animal populations. Until relatively recently, such crossover infections were unusual, but as more habitat has been destroyed for agriculture and urban expansion, more people have come into contact with infected animals. Climate change is exacerbating this problem by helping circulate disease between species that previously did not encounter each other. The study forecast the geographic range shifts of 3,139 mammal species due to climatic and land use changes until 2070 and found that even under a relatively low level of global heating, there will be at least 15,000 cross-species transmission events of one or more viruses during this time. Bats will account for the majority of this disease spread because of their ability to travel large distances. An infected bat in Wuhan in China is a suspected cause of the start of the COVID pandemic, and previous research has estimated there are about 3,200 strains of coronaviruses already moving among bat populations, end quote. 
And from the New York Times, quote, To understand what that sharing will look like, co-author and Georgetown University biologist Colin Carlson and his colleagues built a computer model of potential spillovers in a warming world. The researchers started by projecting how thousands of mammals might shift their ranges as the climate changes between now and 2070. To understand the odds of a successful new infection, the researchers began by building a database of viruses and their mammalian hosts. Some viruses have been found in more than one species of mammal, which means that they must have jumped the species barrier at some point in the past. Using machine learning, the researchers developed a model that could predict whether two host species share a virus. The more that two species overlap geographically, the researchers found, the more likely they were to share a virus. That's because the hosts were more likely to encounter each other, giving their viruses more opportunities to move between them. End quote. Now, the actual viruses in question here are not exactly known. The researchers were looking more broadly at spread and scale. And there have been studies in the past modeling the predicted spread of individual viruses. For example, we know that a warming planet could increase diseases like malaria as mosquitoes expand their range. But this latest study does stand out because it's a broad survey connecting the dots between the climate emergency and pathogen spillover. But Dr. Christine Johnson, a University of California Davis epidemiologist who was not involved in the study says that the broad scale of the study could actually be a downside. The details regarding individual viruses are key, she says, telling the New York Times, quote, we need locally grounded field studies to understand the impacts of climate on species movements and disease transmission risk. End quote. Which is true when it comes to next steps and realistic expectations, but in terms of raising alarm bells, I think this study is useful. And in particular, it sheds light on how, quoting Georgetown, animal habitats will move disproportionately in the same places as human settlements, creating new hotspots of spillover risk. End quote. And as Dr. Carlson said, quote, at every step, our simulations have taken us by surprise. We've spent years double checking those results with different data and different assumptions, but the models always lead us to these conclusions. It's a really stunning example of just how well we can actually predict the future if we try. End quote. And if we can predict the future, maybe we can do something to prevent it as well. Or, well, these researchers say the movement of animals and spread of disease among them is already underway, but we can mitigate the effects of spread by pairing wildlife disease surveillance and real-time studies of environmental change. Carlson gives the example of a Brazilian free-tailed bat making it all the way to Appalachia and how we should be invested in knowing what viruses are tagging along with that bat. We've got to stay vigilant about these sorts of things. As Carlson says, quote, We're closer to predicting and preventing the next pandemic than ever. Now we have to start working on the harder half of the problem. End quote. Well, to cleanse our brains after that last segment, here's another new study, this one out of MIT, and it's all about Oreos. Specifically, why Oreos cream filling tends to stick to just one side when you twist the cookie open. To answer this incredibly pressing question for humanity, MIT engineers invented and 3D printed a device they call the Oreometer. Using the device, they pursued a number of standard rheology tests. Rheology being, quoting MIT News, the study of how a non-Newtonian material flows when twisted, pressed, or otherwise stressed, end quote. Though in the paper's abstract, the researchers introduced the term 
Oreology, which they explain as, quote, from the Nabisco Oreo for cookie and the Greek Rheologia for flow study as the study of the flow and fracture of sandwich cookies. End quote. And for the study, the team used up about 20 boxes of different flavors and stuffings of Oreos, including regular, double stuff, mega stuff, dark chocolate, and golden wafer. But no matter the flavor or type of stuffing, they found that the cream almost always stayed on one side of the cookie. Except for boxes that were a bit old. For those, the cream separated a bit more evenly. So maybe that can be a test for how old your Oreos are in the future. Quoting MIT News, Curiously, when they mapped each cookie's result to its original position in the box, they noticed the cream tended to stick to the inward-facing wafer. Cookies on the left side of the box twisted such that the cream ended up on the right wafer, whereas cookies on the right side separated with cream mostly on the left wafer. They suspect this box distribution may be a result of post-manufacturing Manufacturing environmental effects, such as heating or jostling, that may cause the cream to peel slightly away from the outer wafers even before twisting. End quote. And there's another theory related to the manufacturing. Crystal Owens, co-author and MIT mechanical engineering PhD candidate, explained that in videos of the manufacturing process, it shows that they first put down the wafer, add a bit of cream, and then put the second wafer on top. Owens thinks that that minuscule time delay could cause the cream to stick better to the first wafer. In measuring the torque required to twist open an Oreo cookie, the team found it was similar to that required to open a doorknob, or about a tenth of what's required to twist open a bottle cap. And while the whole study is certainly a bit of fun, and indeed it was begun early on in the pandemic when labs were closed and the scientists were getting creative, it's also meant to be a way of teaching rheology to people. That oreometer they invented, the instructions for 3D printing your own and running it with household items like rubber bands and pennies is available to download. Link in the show notes. So let's talk a little bit more about how that device works and the ties between rheology and oreology. Quoting again, A standard test in rheology places a fluid, slurry, or other flowable material onto the base of an instrument known as a rheometer. A parallel plate above the base can be lowered onto the test material. The plate is then twisted as sensors track the applied rotation and torque. Owens, who regularly uses a laboratory rheometer to test fluid materials such as 3D printable inks, couldn't help noticing a similarity with sandwich cookies. As she writes in the new study, while Oreo cream may not appear to possess fluid-like properties, it is considered a yield-stress fluid, a soft solid when unperturbed that can start to flow under enough stress, the way toothpaste, frosting, certain cosmetics, and concrete do. End quote. So the team first used a standard rheometer before making their oreometer and glued Oreos one at a time to the top and bottom plates of the device. They could then twist the cookie using the device, which meant that they could measure and keep track of the exact torque and rotation angle used on each twist, trying different methods to get the cream to disperse evenly, but mostly finding that no matter what they did, it almost always stayed mostly on one side. The only thing that could possibly change matters, Owens thinks, is if the cookie itself were more textured on the inside so the cream could grip to the cookie. But even if they didn't figure out a better way of twisting open Oreo cookies for anyone who's looking for that even, creamy distribution, the team did take away a lot of lessons about complex fluid materials. Quoting Owens, 
My 3D printing fluids are in the same class of materials as Oreo cream, so this new understanding can help me better design ink when I'm trying to print flexible electronics from a slurry of carbon nanotubes because they deform in almost exactly the same way. End quote. Man, I want to imagine a world where all complex science findings are fueled by experiments with cookies. If I'm ever, like, filthy rich, maybe I'll start a scholarship exactly for that. I'd only give out grants for scientists willing to test their work using cookies. Well, this is good news specifically for me, a guy who on Sunday successfully convinced an entire room full of people that of all the werewolves ever depicted in media, Michael J. Fox's 1985 Teen Wolf was the best one. Because it was just announced that Apple Original Films has acquired a full-length documentary on Michael J. Fox's life. Directed by An Inconvenient Truth's Davis Guggenheim, the movie combines archival and scripted footage along with unprecedented access to Fox and his family. Guggenheim bills the doc as, quote, a mix of adventure and romance, comedy and drama. Watching the film will feel like, well, a Michael J. Fox movie. End quote. Count me in. No word on release date or anything yet, but I, for one, will absolutely be tuning in as soon as it drops. And that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.